Well, good morning. Great to see everybody. Well, Thanksgiving is behind us, and uh, Christmas is now on the radar, right? Actually, I've been seeing Chris, or Christmas decorations in all the stores since October. <laughs> yep, uh, it's right here, right in front of us now. And uh, all the Black Friday shoppers, you know, they've been out there. They've trampled their way to the best deals. The Cyber Monday morning cybergs are out. They're ready, poised for their click on the seasonal catch. And millions of children are nestled up, snug in their beds with visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads. Yeah, what are we kidding? <laughs> They're dreaming of cell phones and laptops and the newest Xbox, right? <laughs> you know, it's amazing. It's hard to know what to get kids for Christmas these years. You know, things are so expensive. You know, I heard that uh, Santa Claus had to uh, file for Chapter 11, uh, bankruptcy. It's really hard to know. And the kids are so different. You know, every child is different. They want different things. It's really confusing. Um, there was this couple, they had two twin boys. And they, although the boys were identical twins, they had incredibly different personalities. One was just a hope filled optimist who always saw the bright side of life. And the other was just a dark pessimist who struggled with the dark and downside of life. And so the parents were really worried because they had these extreme different views of the way that they looked at the world. And so they sought the advice of a psychiatrist, and he gave them some very interesting advice. He told them, okay, on the boy's next birthday, I want you to give the pessimist the most beautiful brand new bicycle, and I want you to give the optimist a box of manure. <laughs> like, what? Now, the parents really struggled, but they thought, we really want to help balance these kids out a little bit. So sure enough... On the boy's birthday, the pessimist woke up, and there it was, the most beautiful, brand-new, expensive racing bike. And as soon as the boy saw the bike, he said to himself, Oh, man, I'll probably crash it and break my leg. And when that optimist took that box and opened it up and saw the manure, he looked really puzzled for a moment. And then he ran outside screaming, You can't fool me with all this manure. There's got to be a pony around here somewhere. <laughs> Now, that is a kid with a lot of hopeful expectation. And that's what Christmas is all about, hopeful expectation. You know, as a society right now, it's almost kind of we're clinging to our last scrap of bread. It's like we're in a hope famine. So many people are ravished with anxiety and with fear and just this sense of overwhelming hopelessness. There's sort of this sense of unrightness that's all around us. And into this uneasy space comes Advent. Now, Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. And Advent celebrates the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. It's a mystery of a child born into a fallen world who is the hope of God for all mankind. Advent rejoices that Jesus Christ has come, that he is present in the world today, and that Jesus will return again to restore God's plan. Advent's a time to realize just how much we need a Savior. Advent is a time to wait on God with great expectation. Advent is a time to remember and to be refreshed in hope. And Advent's a time to experience God's peace and his presence in a very busy season. It all began in times just like these where people were struggling with hope and wondering if there was hope in the world. 
when hope was lost and the children of Israel were wondering and hoping and waiting with expectation for a Messiah, for a deliverer. And then one dark, starry night, these angelic messengers burst forth into the sky to proclaim good news to lowly shepherds when they said to them in Luke 10 and 11, it records it, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, I think it's both interesting and also really incredible that the very first people that God chose to hear his good news were lowly shepherds. I mean, you have to realize of who shepherds were in that society. They were the outcasts. They were the ones that no one had any respect for. They often lived isolated lives with their sheep. And what an incredibly important and great message from God, an unmistakable message that to the simple, to the humble, to the unnoticed, God says, Jesus is for you. And that is very good news. Good news. That's what the gospel means. Now, many of you may be familiar of the gospels in the Bible. These are the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry that were recorded by his followers. We have a couple from his disciples, Matthew and John, and one by Mark, who was a close companion of the disciple Peter, and by Luke, who was also a very close companion of the apostle Paul. And each of these writers wrote for different reasons with, you know, sort of a different audience in mind. But what's really interesting is that John wrote his gospel later. In fact, John wrote it at the very end of his life when he was beginning to notice that some of the eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, people who actually saw him, they were beginning to die off. And it was important to John that he wanted them to know about new generations, to know about who Jesus was and to embrace him as Savior. So John actually states the purpose of his gospel toward the end in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And he says this, Jesus made many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John wanted unmistakably to stir belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and he also wanted to share the life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So as we kick off our Advent series here, we're going to fill our souls with such incredible hope as we hear from John about who Jesus is and also the hope that Jesus brings. I'm going to focus on the first five verses in the book of John today, But I actually want to read the whole prologue, the first 18 verses, because they set the stage of everything that John says is important to know about Jesus. So if you have a Bible, why don't you grab it and uh, take a look at the the Gospel of John here. If you don't have a Bible with you, no worries. You can kind of follow along with me. And I want to encourage those of you who don't own a Bible, make sure you grab one on the lobby. There's a bookshelf right here on the side, and we'd love you to have a Bible as a gift so that you can take it home with you today. So here, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. 
God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He simply was a witness to tell people about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he came into the very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who's greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son is himself God and is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. Now, to me, it is incredibly clear that what John wants us to know, he's making a very important point, that you see Christianity is not about a religion. It's, it's not about a philosophy. It's about a person. It is about Jesus Christ. And he wants us to know that there's something very special and unique about Jesus, that Jesus is God. And that he got to see and hear and touch God in the flesh. And you can tell that even after 50 years, when he's writing this much later in his life, he still can't get over that experience, that he's still connected to God in this way. And he's so excited, and he wants, and he yearns, and he's pleading with you to believe that this is true. You know, he shares this excitement in another book that he wrote that we know as 1 John in the Bible. I want to read just a few verses about what he wrote there in this introduction. He says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have seen and heard. We saw him with our eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He's the word of life. And we're writing you these things so that you may fully share our joy. John almost can't contain himself. He is so excited. He really wants you to know that this isn't some myth or legend. He says, I was there. I am not making this up. I mean, Jesus really walked on water. Jesus rose people from the dead. He healed. He rose himself from the dead. We touched his resurrected body. Thomas took his finger and put it in the holes of Jesus and stuck it in his side. <laughs> now, I want you to think about this for a second. I mean, honestly. These gospel writers, when they recorded what they saw, their first-hand eyewitness accounts... 
they wrote these and circulated these at the exact time when all of the witnesses of Jesus' life were still around. And so when Luke writes in the, in the, um, God, in the book of Acts that 500 people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, you could take that and you could go find those people. Is this true? You saw him? You mean he was dead and then he came back to life? This is the exact same period of time as these things were being written that the gospel exploded and people came in droves to believe in Jesus Christ. It spread like wildfire. Now, if this was some sort of cover-up, some sort of lie, why would anyone want to follow a dead Jesus? But the hope and joy of Advent and of Christmas is that Jesus Christ really lived. Jesus Christ really died. And he rose again, which validated every single thing that he said. And this brought incredible hope to people. I believe what John says in his gospel is so important and life-changing. And so we're going to dig in. We're going to look at these five first verses. And so I want you to grab your message notes And I'd love to give you your first point that you can write in on those notes. And that's this. This is what John wants us to know about Jesus. That Jesus is the pre-existent word. The pre-existent word. Now, the, the other three gospels that I mentioned to you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tend to give a biological account of Jesus' life. You know, how he came and what he did. And as Pastor Ron mentioned, John's gospel is mainly theological, and he explains who Jesus is and why he came. And we see this in John 1, 1 and 2, these first two verses. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. In the beginning. Doesn't that sound familiar? Sounds like the first three words from the Bible. The first three words of Genesis, which is the account of the creation of the world. John equates the creation of the world with the word, with Jesus Christ. And he says that Jesus existed before the creation. Now, when you step backwards from the beginning, you're stepping into eternity. And John's telling us in no uncertain terms that Jesus is eternal that he was with God, and that he was God. John takes us back to the very beginning so that we have to rethink everything that we know about the world. You see, Jesus isn't just another work of God. He's actually an essential part of God himself. He calls Jesus the Word. Now, why would he do that? That's kind of a curious thing, right? Now, as we mentioned, John As he was older, he was writing to a primarily non-Jewish audience. He was writing from Ephesus. Most of them were from the Greek culture. And so he wants to present Jesus in a way that made sense to Greek-thinking people. Okay, And so during this time in history, the Greek philosophers had spoke of and talked about something called the logos, which is Greek for the word. And they believed that there was this logos spirit, a non-personal force that had brought order and structure to the universe. So they recognized as they looked at the world around them that it didn't happen by random chance and that it required a source 
to have formed and shaped it. But they believe this logos, spirit, to be impersonal. And what John's telling them is, no, the logos, the word, is personal. It is Jesus Christ, the creator God. John says he existed before the creation of the world. Now, I've mentioned in a previous message before that scientists today speculate that there are more than 10 dimensions. Now, we only experience and understand three. But through their wonderful, magnificent minds that they have, they've calculated this out and come to the conclusion, 10 dimensions, much more than we see and understand. And I believe that this totally makes sense as to how then God himself can exist outside of the time as we understand it, and be eternal and outside the bounds of time, and how also he can be ever-present and with us at the same time when we never experienced it. Do you remember when I talked about Mr. Flat that only lived in two dimensions, and if we lived in three and we looked down, he can only see to the side and can't see us even though they're right above him. God lives outside of dimensions that we understand. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. But the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. Jesus has revealed God to us. God became human in the person of Jesus Christ. And something ultimate has broken into our life. You see, life isn't just life anymore. It's life with God in it. Jesus, God incarnate, has come to restore the created order of us to be able to commune and live in the presence of God. Now, let's be honest. Some of you are a little confused here. It's like, okay, we have God, the Father, God, and then we have Jesus as God, and then there's the Spirit as God. (laughs) How does this all work? Well, this is what's known as the Trinity, which means tri-unity. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time to completely explain that because it would take a little bit of time. We've done that in a previous message. But I do honestly believe that God's unique, triune nature is reflected all around us. I mean, I think we can see it in our own human nature. I also believe that it's reflected in the world around us. Even as time and space and matter, they reflect three divisions that include the whole of all the others. See, God's nature is reflected all around us, if we really are willing to see it. And Jesus' divine nature is so important to our next point. And the next point is this, that Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. Now, the Bible never tries to defend God's creation of the world. It just proclaims it. It just says, God, who is timeless, created matter out of nothing, but his will and his power, that Jesus, the word, spoke it into existence. John 1, 3, and 4 says this, God created everything through him, Nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created. And the Bible says that Jesus not only created the world, but that he holds it together. He sustains it. And we see this when the Apostle Paul talks about this to the Colossians in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He says, through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Now, the gospel accounts of Jesus' 
life and ministry and his miracles that he performed. They all confirm his divinity. I mean, think about it. Jesus created new matter. He turned water into wine. He produced bread and fish to feed thousands of people. He healed the blind and the crippled. He repaired cells, regrew tissues. He created life when he rose people from the dead. Three people, a widow's son, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus. And Jesus called his miracles signs. Signs that pointed to his identity. And during his life on year, here on earth, Jesus actually did what we would expect a creator God to do, right? I mean, he did it in the way we would expect him to, by his word, with his will, with his power. And this is why you can trust Jesus, because he is the all-powerful life giver. Nothing exists apart from him. Jesus is the author of life. He said in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus is not just the life, but he's also the light. And that's our third point. Jesus is the light. Jesus came to shine light into the darkness. We get lost in the dark, don't we? You know, when I'm wandering around the dark, I'm bound to stub my toe on something. I, I hit things. In the dark, we can't find the way. But Jesus brings light to reveal God to us. John 1, 4, and 5 says this. And his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Light and dark are opposites, but they're not equals. You see, light dispels darkness. Even if you have a very small candle and you take it into a very dark room, that light peels back the darkness, and light reveals God to us. John 8, 12, Jesus announced, he says, I, I, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is saying, I will light the way. I will show you the way to God. Now, the term darkness in the Bible, you know, we hear that now and then. And what it's referring to, it's understood to be spiritual darkness as being under the cover of spiritual blindness. There's a professor at Biola University where I attended many years ago. <laughs> and he said this about darkness, and I love this. He says, we are born with an insidious and profound blindness that creates spiritual darkness in our life. This darkness is produced from within us, a spiritual blindness. You see, blindness isn't just a matter of seeing, but a way of seeing. We can experience blindness that happens during vision. For example, a bumblebee. Now, a bumblebee can see ultraviolet light, which is one of the ways that they see pollen in flowers. We can't see the same way. The bee and I see very different things in the same experience. There's so much more around us than what appears to us. X-rays, gamma rays, microwaves are all forces of light. I don't know if you knew this or not, but we see less than 1% 
of the entire light spectrum around us. True blindness isn't being in a dark room with your eyes closed. True blindness is a lack of perception altogether. It's like how we cannot even imagine how a bat can see with sonar. We just don't see as much as we think we do. Now, as far as I know, no one in this room is blind. And yet, all of us are truly incredibly blind. And if we would just be honest and acknowledge our spiritual blindness and ask God to help us see. John says that Jesus is the light that helps us see and know God. Jesus is the true light and life of God. Now, considering all of this, what we've talked about here, I think it's important that we carefully consider what is our response to these amazing things that John has told us about Jesus, this extraordinary person. And I want to give you three examples of actual people who encountered Jesus and they responded in three different distinct ways. And I would hope that you might consider to respond maybe as they did. The first response is this, to open your heart with love and worship. Open your heart with love and worship. I honestly um, believe that when we discover and our eyes are open to who Jesus really is, <laughs> that the almost automatic instantaneous response of our heart is to respond with love and worship. This was the response of the disciple Thomas, who after Jesus had died on the cross and then Jesus was resurrected and he got a chance to actually touch Jesus' resurrected body, he responded this way in John 20, 28. My Lord and my God. Thomas is a great example for us. I mean, here's a guy who spent three years with Jesus. Three years with Jesus, watching all the miracles, seeing him do amazing things. And yet, when Jesus died on that cross, he was convinced that it was over. All hope was lost. Jesus was gone, dead. It was done. No matter how hard the other disciples tried to convince Thomas... That Jesus rose from the dead, he refused to believe. He said he had to see Jesus in front of him and touch those actual wounds before he would ever believe. And you know what? Jesus gave him that gift. And he appeared to Thomas. And I just can't imagine that moment when all of a sudden it clicked. This resurrected Jesus, and he touches his body. And he says, my Lord and my God. What a message of hope to the doubters, to the skeptics, to the unconvinced. God's message is, Jesus is for you. Open your heart and worship. Second response is to believe in Jesus and receive everlasting life. Believe in Jesus and receive everlasting life. 
Now, belief in the Bible is a very important word. You know, the gospel writers express their belief in Jesus, but it's important to note it's not wishful thinking. You know, like, I believe in fairies. No, these are people that actually saw Jesus. And the belief that they're talking about has more to do with trust. See, they believed who Jesus was, and he believed that what he told them was true. They believed the life that Jesus gives is everlasting life. And this is expressed so beautifully through the response of a woman called Martha. Now, Martha was a friend of Jesus, along with her sister Mary, and she also had a brother Lazarus. And at one point, when Jesus had gone away for a little while, Lazarus had fallen sick, and then he died. And then when Jesus came back, Martha was incredibly filled with grief. And she told Jesus, had you just been here, you could have healed my brother. And Jesus responded to Martha with these words in John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Martha is such a great example for all of us. She represents all of us who are struggling, who are troubled, who are grieving, those whose hope is crushed, and those who maybe at one time thought that Jesus could do something for them and then gave up on that hope. And Jesus says, don't give up on hope. Believe in me and find everlasting life. And so God's message to the troubled, to the hopeless, to the grieving is this. Jesus is for you. Believe in him. And then last, number three, the response to look to Jesus to bring light to your life. Are you tired of living in the dark? Does the path to God seem far away, hidden? Does life often seem meaningless? Jesus wants to bring light into your life. You know, when we stumble through the darkness, we find ourselves in places that we never thought we would. You know, we sabotage ourselves with choices and end up with regret. John tells the story of a woman in the Bible who was caught in adultery. She's a weary soul filled with shame and guilt. And the religious leaders wanted to take her out and stone her and kill her for her immorality. And Jesus walks in and breaks into that moment, and he sees her. And he extends his love and his forgiveness. And then he speaks to the crowd, and he sends this message. In John 8, 12, he says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. Because you will have the light that leads to life. The adulterous woman found light in the darkness. Jesus extends his hand to lead her out of the darkness and into his light. And there's nothing more beautiful than being fully known and fully loved. 
And so for all of us, you know, everyone, all of us who are broken by sin, who harm and who have been harmed, who live under condemnation and under judgment, to the lost, to the broken, to the ashamed, God sends you this message. Jesus is for you. In John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. I have come so the blind will see. Jesus is the light and he shows us what God is like. He makes God knowable. And you see this eternal life, this abundant life, this spiritual life. They only exist in a relationship with Jesus. John 1, 4 says, in him was life. Not by him, not through him. In him, in Jesus, in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. See, the big idea of the incarnation of God becoming human is that you were created for this wonderful, beautiful, intimate, loving, life-giving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the message of Christmas is fiercely relational, that God has gone to the furthest extremes possible to restore a relationship with you, and that Jesus offers you the most beautiful Christmas gift. You see, he's broken down the walls, the dividing walls of sin, to heal us of that, to restore you to what you were created to be. Jesus is for you. John 1.12 says, To all who received him, he gives the right to become children of God. These are spiritually reborn. A new creation in Christ, made whole, partakers of eternal life. And this eternal life isn't just something way off in the future. It's life in Jesus. When we receive Jesus, we receive new life to enjoy forever. Fully expressed, yes, in heaven. But also connected to Jesus now through his spirit. And that is true meaning for life. And that is true hope for all of us. Let's pray. Lord, we just come before you in a, a spirit of awe and worship. God, you are so amazing. It's unfathomable to think that you would go as far as to come to the earth in human form to know us, to understand, God, to help us understand that you can feel the things that we feel. You know the pain of rejection. You know the heartache of isolation. You know the sting of pain. You are for us, God. You've gone to such great lengths to send that message. I am for you. Lord, you touched people. You spoke the word and the blind could see. And so in Jesus' name we would pray that eyes would be opened to the reality of who you are. That hearts would not be closed, but they would be open. You give us a spirit of understanding. And for those maybe that for the first time are seeing a light different than any light they've experienced before and their hearts are ready to embrace you, they could pray to you, Lord. Lord Jesus, 
I recognize I've messed my life up pretty bad. I've tried to play my own God. I've denied you for a long time. But now I feel and sense that your hand is extended to me and I want to embrace you as my savior. I want to be received into your kingdom. I want my life to change. I want this eternal abundant life that you described to me. I need that light and that hope in my life. In Jesus' name. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead sees. Hail the incarnate deity. Please with men with man to dwell, Jesus of Emmanuel. Hark the herald 